Amen. Numbers, chapter 33. Let's read verse 1 together, and then we'll do a little bit of an introductory explanation. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. What follows in chapter 33 is a destination by destination description of the last 40 years of Israel's history. It's another one of those passages that you read and if you have a high view of scripture, If you resonate with what Paul says when he says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction, for righteousness, for the equipping of the saints for every good work, we go, well, then what do you do with this? I mean, just just a sample. Uh, Let's just pick out verse 15, just so you can know what's in here. And they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped in Kibroth Hathephah. That's the format. Over and over again, a total of 42 destinations, one after the other. For the most part, places you've never been, places you've never heard of, some places that we still can't find on a map. Um, They were lost with time. So why is it here? I am convinced that in the modern Western world, we have forgotten how to read. Uh, And it's not necessarily due to lack of literature. More books are published all the time. But because of that, the way we read, and I find this in myself, and I constantly struggle with it, um, is cursory. It's quick. In fact, it's worth your while to study Uh, the findings that they're finding now from how reading blogs and the ability to scroll is changing the way we take in information. But I do think there are touch points that can help us understand things like this. A few years ago, while I was living on Capitol Hill, someone invited me to see a play that the Strawberry Workshop put on uh, called The Normal Heart. And The Normal Heart was about uh, the AIDS epidemic in its first year before anyone knew what was going on or what to do about it, specifically in Manhattan. It was written by a man uh, who survived that period of time, unlike most of his friends and many in his family, and he was just reflecting as an activist in the gay community, reflecting on this time. And it is a gut-wrenching play. It's very hard to watch as they walk, walk through Uh, these personal stories and show that absolutely everybody has blood on their hands for this period. Everybody dropped the ball. It was a horrifying time. Traditionally, when the play is performed, uh, between the acts, they read the roster of those who died in Manhattan of AIDS during those first four years of the epidemic. But as they did it here in Seattle, they read the names of those who died here in Seattle, including our state senator, Cal Anderson, for which our park across the street is named. And as I was seeing it, they had set up the sanctuary, or excuse me, they had set up the theater uh, with stadium seating. In other words, half the audience was on my side, 
in bandstands and half the audience was in the opposite side and so I couldn't just see what was happening in the performance in the middle I could also see the audience responding and as I looked across the stage as they were reading these names I saw men and women weeping and I realized that these names were not just a list of the dead these were friends and family members and as this was read they were grieving they were going through their own process of mourning and yet at the same time, it's just, it's just a roster of the dead. It's not even an obituary. It's nothing but a list of names, and yet it carries deep significance because it's tied to something important. That's what this chapter is. Okay? It doesn't necessarily resonate with us in the same way for two reasons. One, which I think is understandable, there's a sense where although this scripture is for us, it wasn't originally written to us. Right? When these words were penned, they were penned for Israel, and so the names of these places are not just a itinerary, it's their itinerary. They have memories and attachments and the equivalent of mental postcards that go through all of these things. But I think there's a second reason. I think when it comes to things like this, we become very poor readers indeed. If we read sections of scripture like this at all, we read them quickly and fastly without much thought. And it's worth remembering even that the fact that the primary way people were exposed to the Bible all the way up past the time of Jesus was orally. It was not a book that they had and a book they pulled off the shelf and read. It was a book that they gathered publicly and was read aloud. Even that changes something. It changes the pace. It changes the way we receive the information. And so um, it's important to keep those things in mind as we look at this chapter. Now, one of the reasons why this chapter exists is best articulated to us in verse 2. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are the stages according to their starting places. In other words, here is a very good time to remember that the Bible has things in this like this, in it like this, because it is historical. This was written down as a historical record of the journey that was made, much like an army on the march would recount and record its stations and where they broke camp and how they moved through enemy territory. So also we're told here that Moses himself wrote this down. And not only did Moses write this, who is not merely an eyewitness of these things, this isn't the journal of a Civil War soldier, but also the leader of Israel. And more importantly, it says here that he did so because God commanded him to do so. There's a smattering of places where the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, we can pull back the veil and start to understand their authorship. And constantly we find Moses sitting at the writing table. We see that again here. And so it's helpful for us to remember the reason, uh, another reason why this chapter exists is because the Bible is an articulation of history. You aren't going to find a passage like this in one of Grimm's fairy tales. And so here, history is important, history is recorded. Now here it says that Moses wrote by the command of God, and that says something significant about the Bible itself. Okay? That it's not merely some people going, you know what, other people are going to want to hear about this. Moses going, okay, I should really write this down. No, this is actually something God wanted done. This is the second time in the book of Numbers we're told specifically that God said, write this down. 
By the time we get through what we call the progressive revelation of Scripture, remember that this book wasn't just handed to us out of heaven, full and complete. It was recorded as history was moving and progressing, which means the entirety of what the Bible was to become at this time is not yet written. It's not yet recorded. And so when we look at the whole, though, and we understand this idea of progressive revelation that God is showing more and more of who he is, by the time we get to the New Testament, it goes beyond what's written here. It doesn't just say that those who wrote the scriptures wrote them by the command of God. It says something more significant. Listen to the words of Peter. Peter here in 2 Peter chapter 1 is actually talking about his own writing and the writing of his contemporaries. In fact, near the end of the letter, he takes what he applies here to scripture and applies it to the letters of Paul. But listen to what he says here. He says this, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Moses just didn't merely write this at the command of God. God wrote this through Moses. See, the Bible is not a record, according to the Bible, of God's revelation to man. It's part of that revelation. It's not just that God did stuff and said stuff and somebody had the smarts to write it down. God speaks through the writing itself. That's what Peter says. That's what Paul says. And we get a little glimpse of that all the way back here with Moses as he writes this down by the command of God. Now there's another thing, and I touched on this earlier, that this chapter does that I'd like to do as we read through it now, is that as these places are listed, these are not merely places, they're places where stuff happened. As these names are read over the people of Israel, there's no doubt they were, as they are on the border of the promised land, it's an opportunity for them to look back and remember what the last 40 years have been like. And so, as we read through this, let's just look at what we learn about the God of Israel. Imagine that you are the people of Israel on the banks of the promised land, and it's just that. It's a land of promises. A place where God has said, I have intentions for you here. I'm going to take you in here. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you the victory. This is an opportunity for remember, to remember them, or remember then, the faithfulness of the one who's made these promises. Okay? So with that being said, it begins where our story began in the book of Exodus in Egypt, verse 3. They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord has struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. And so it begins as Israel's recitation of history almost always does with God the Deliverer, the one who brought them out of Egypt. Even the Ten Commandments back in Exodus begin with, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt, and then the Ten Commandments are given. 
And so there's a chance here for them to reflect on the fact that the origin of this story that they're currently living doesn't begin with them. It begins with God who delivered them out of slavery against great odds. There's also a little piece of commentary I just want to point out to you. We talked about this extensively back in Exodus. But notice it says at the end of verse 4 there, On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. It gives us a glimpse into the purpose behind the plagues. If you read the chapters of early Exodus, the plagues seem to us as modern readers somewhat random. Fascinating, miraculous for sure, but somewhat random. But it is really an uh, exact attack on the pantheon of the Egyptian religion. They worship the Nile, the Nile turns to blood. Even the death of the firstborn, which touches even the house of Pharaoh, is an attack on the deity of Pharaoh himself. If you read the story, you'll see over and over again, so that Egypt may know that I am God. It's a demonstration that he is God and therefore their gods are not. And then after that, we get into the journey and we can find another characteristic of God. Look at verse 5. So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Succoth. And they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-Heroth, which is east of Balzaphon, and they camped before Migdal. Okay, notice that. They're moving in a direction, and then they turn around and go the other way. This is the action that leads them into the Red Sea. Okay, so they're moving out towards the promised land. There's a road that goes straight to what we know as Israel, and they turn off of it, and they start to dial back and move towards the Red Sea. This is the circumstances that leads to them being trapped by the incoming Egyptian armies, but that's exactly how God leads them, and he does so for a reason. Notice as it continues here, verse 8, they set out from before Hiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. Once again, we see a tremendous victory here. We encounter God, the victor. He's not just the one who set them free. He's the one who defeated their enemies. Once again, with, uh, with outlandish odds and with no help from Israel. In this entire routing of the Egyptian army, what part did Israel play? A day at the beach? I mean, their role is so insignificant. All they do is the waters part and they walk through them and God takes care of their enemies. Does that seem significant as they sit here with the River Jordan and beyond that, the great fortress city of Jericho? Of course it is. And so we continue here. And now it moves into this period of the wilderness from the early books of, uh, early uh, aspects of Exodus And we encounter another aspect of who God is, God the provider. Look at verse 9. They set out from Marah and came to Elim. Marah was the place where the water was bitter, and through God's help the water was made drinkable. They came to Elim, and there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. And they set out from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. And from the wilderness of Sin they camped in Dopka, and in Dopka they camped in Elush. And from Elush they camped in Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. 
And that's when they strike the rock and water is provided for them out of the rock. This whole section is Israel learning the day-to-day provision of the God who's led them out of, it, uh, out of Egypt. Despite their murmuring and complaining and wondering, God in this period of time constantly shows up. It's during these destinations that manna begins to fall and feed the people. But unfortunately, the journey continues And so notice here in verse 13, they set out from Dobka and camped in Elush, and then Rephidim, verse 15, they set out from Rephidim and they camped in the wilderness of Sinai. Now between verse 15 and verse 16 is almost a year's time. Because in Sinai, they set around Mount Sinai, and that's where the law is given, and they stay put there. Remember, as there's 40 days Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments and then another 40 days because he comes down and due to the idolatry of Israel, there's kind of a starting fresh. All of these things are happening and they continue to stay there as all of Exodus uh, and, or the rest of Exodus and Leviticus is given. Okay. Over a year's time, what did they learn about God here? They learn about the holiness of God. It's here that they're given the prescription for all the sacrifices. It's here that they're given the tabernacle. It's here that the tabernacle is built and assembled, and even Moses himself can't enter in until their sacrificial system and the festivals are all up and running. It's here that they're given the kosher law and all of the clean and unclean and the ritual law. It's all laid out for them here. It's here where they came to understand the true distance between them and God and the difficulty of God dwelling in their midst. And so it moves on in verse 17. Uh, verse 16, they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hava. They set out from Kibroth Hava and uh, camped at Hazroth. And they set out from Hezroth and camped in Ritma. And they set out from Ritma and camped at Rimon Perez. And they set out from Rimon Perez and camped at Libna. And it goes on and on and on here. And because of Israel's rejection, all the way down through verse 37, through 38, through 39, which we'll touch on just a second, all the way down through 41, in fact, all the way through to 48, we have this period of time where because of their refusal to enter into the promised land, they continue moving, but they don't get anywhere. For, uh, for this section, this is the only place in Numbers or anywhere else where this roster of cities is given. We know a lot from earlier in Numbers about the places they stopped and started before Sinai. We know a lot about the opening of this uh, and the closing part of this, but for this, this is mostly just a list of going nowhere. But we do learn something about God here. Not only is God holy and so there's consequence for sin, but this is a demonstration of God's patience as he allows the older generation to die off over 40 years and puts his entire plan, if you will, on hold and patiently waits for the people of Israel to be ready to enter into the land. And along the way, the sin goes so deep that it affects even the leadership of Israel. It's at this time that Miriam, in her rebellion, loses her right to enter the land. It's at this time, look at verse 38, Aaron the priest went up on Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. It's during this period that Moses reacts poorly, misrepresents God, and loses his ability to enter into the promised land. But nonetheless, this 40 years primarily speaks of God's patience. 
that his plan is not thwarted by the sins of Israel, even if it is delayed. Verse 40, the Canaanite king of Arad who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan heard of the coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmoa. And they sent on from Zalmoa and camped at Punon. And it goes on and on and on until we get to where they currently are in the book of Numbers. Verse 48, they set out from the mountains of Abiram and camped in the plains of Moab by Jordan at Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. Now that's actually pretty close to where the book will end tonight. They'll still be in that place. Okay? And so effectively, this review brings them all the way up to the borders of the promised land, to the borders of the book of Numbers, uh, to the borders of mi- uh, the ministry of Moses, to the borders of this interim time. And so what happens next is a rapid fire final charge through Moses, things that need to be dealt with. before they they can enter into the land. And so notice the pattern here. This next section is all structurally the same. It begins in verse 50. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them. Then all the way down in 34, 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... 35.1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, verse 9, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, okay, these are all closing matters, and not only is there this repetition here, but there's a progression. And so it begins with how they're to go about conquering the land, and then how they're to go about dividing the land, and then how they're supposed to populate throughout all of the divisions of the land, the Levitical cities, and then we get to the cities of refuge. But it's all laid out and happening here one after another in preparation for what we'll get at the end of the book of Deuteronomy or at the beginning of Joshua. And so let's go back to chapter 34, verse 1. Where does he begin? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan, as defined by its borders. Your south side, hold on, I want to go back and do part of 33. I got ahead of myself. Okay, so verse 51. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan in the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out, got to do this first before the divisional land, drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. Now the figured stones, the metal images, and the high places, what is that talking about? It's talking about worship. Places of worship, implements of worship, It's talking about the idolatrous worship of the current inhabitants of Canaan. And notice that they are commanded here to get rid of all of it, okay, to destroy every aspect of it. Now, here, once again, we're dealing with uh, the reality of holy war, and we don't have time to talk about this at length. So if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to that, and we will talk about it again as we get into the book of Joshua. Um, So you can just hold on. But here the emphasis is on the danger of not rightly dealing with this conquering religious danger in particular. And so they're to demolish all of these religious aspects. Verse 53, you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. 
You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe, you'll give a large inheritance. To a small tribe, you'll give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his according to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. But, notice the warning, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those, uh, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And so a warning is given here. First, the command, go into the land, destroy all of their implements of worship, don't leave any of them remaining, and then the warning is, if you do not, if you leave the people, they will eventually cause you trouble. And when you read the book of Judges, some of this is military trouble, right? Some of them are going to fight back. You can imagine... um, You can imagine what it'd be like to grow up in the land as one of the survivors of this war. What are your greatest hopes and intentions? Revenge. And we see that playing out in Judges, but there's something more significant here than just some sort of militaristic danger. Even when you read the book of Judges, where does the victory come from? Over and over again, the pattern repeats itself that Israel begins to walk away from the Lord and in the way of the people. Therefore, God in judgment gives them over to their enemies and then they cry out for a deliverer and God sends a deliverer and in the next generation it happens again. Okay? And so the warning here is not about militaristic strategy and danger. It's about influence. It's about influence. The way that they're going to be barbs in the eyes and thorns in the side is that they are going to influence the practice of Israel away from the worship of the living and true God and into the worship of their idols. And that's why it ends in verse 6, I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Remember again that God is not merely getting rid of the Canaanites because he wants to give the land to Israel. This is an act of judgment. This is a land of polluted thought and action. And Israel uh, will, will receive the same sentence if they walk in the same way. And so he warns him here, he warns them about what will happen if they do not drive out all the people. And unfortunately, this is a very necessary warning. One that they do not heed and one that they struggle with. In fact, as we're about to read about the boundaries of the land of Israel, the borders that God was giving them, never once in Israel's history did they control the entirety of the land promised here in Numbers. And it wasn't until the rule of David and Solomon that they even came close to those boundaries and borders. When we get to the middle chapters of the book of Joshua, we'll read over and over again, and Zebulon was unable to drive them out of the land, and Naphtali was unable to drive them out of the land, and Gad was over and over again, this will be repeated. But God gives the warning up front, and unfortunately, this makes the ark of the rest of the Old Testament. And so after the rule of Solomon, Uh, they continue to walk down this path and worship these idols. You remember the uh, Elijah. He's not standing up against some new novel god. It's Baal, the same one we've been reading about in Numbers. And now he's got his own prophets in Israel with sanction of the king. 
And God warns them and says, turn around or else, turn around or else. And one prophet after another comes and calls Israel to repent. And hundreds of years go by until God finally brings out the sentence that he promises here. I'll vomit you out of the land. I'll remove you from the land. And through the uh, armies of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, God does just that. And it's in those days uh, that we have the prophet Jeremiah. It's in those days that we have the book of Daniel. And then by God's grace, he brings them back into the land with Ezra and Nehemiah. And that brings us to the New Testament. But God up front warns them how this is going to go. And it gets stronger in Deuteronomy. When Moses gives his final address, he doesn't so much say, watch out when this happens. He says, when this happens, here's how it's going to go. But the warning is given. And I think it's worth for us reflecting uh, the nature of God's truth in our lives is often preemptive. I always compare it to the instructions on a fire extinguisher. If you don't know what they are right now, the worst time to learn is during a fire. God has graciously and faithfully filled his scripture with warnings and said, watch out for this. In fact, even the stories we read in the book of Numbers, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, are exactly that. They're warnings for us. And it's amazing how often, if we just take time and reflect, God has preemptively warned us for what's to come. And I say this for a simple reason, because I find this trait in myself, and I see it in others, I hear it in conversation, that says, oh, well, that part of Scripture has no real relevance to my life. And so the Bible says certain things about marriage, and you go, yeah, but that's not important to me because I'm single. Okay. The thing is, (laughs) none of us are good about going, okay, well, now that I'm getting married, I should really brush up. That's just not the way we live. And I would encourage you to recognize that if God takes the time to make a warning, it's probably necessary. I know that none of you have ever seen a sign in Seattle that says, watch out for polar bears. Okay, and the reason is because it's not a problem here. It's not a problem now. Maybe some of you will travel to places where that warning would apply, but it doesn't apply here. That's not how it is with God's warning. They're not inapplicable. And if God takes the time to say, watch out for this, this is why it says in Proverbs that he who stands should take heed lest he falls. Because the warnings are significant. And so Israel is given everything they need to understand the consequences, and it doesn't stop them from walking through it. But God is faithful to provide a warning. Chapter 34. So, When they conquer the land, what comes next? The division of the land between the tribes. Now, originally that was between the 12 tribes, but remember that Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe Manasseh have all decided to take land east of the Jordan, outside the promised land. But for the rest, for the nine that remain, um, remember I'm removing uh, the Levitical priesthood as well, Uh, This is important. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan, as defined by its borders. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin, alongside Edom, and your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east. And your border shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabim to cross the Zin, uh, and its limit shall be the south Kadesh Barnea. 
Then it shall go on to Hazar, Adar, and pass along to Asmon. And the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its limits shall be the sea. For the western border, you shall have the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, and its coast. This shall be your western border. This shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you'll draw a line to Mount Hor, and from Mount Hor, you shall draw a line to Labo Hamath, to the limit of the border shall be Zadad. Then the border shall extend to Ziphron, and its limit shall be Hazarinan. This shall be your northern border. You'll draw a line from your eastern border, from Hazarinan to Shephim, and the border shall go down from Shephim to Riblah on the east side of Ain, and the border shall go down and reach to the shoulder of the Sea of Shinnereth on the east, and the border shall go down to Jordan, and its limit shall be at the Salt Sea. There we've come full circle. This shall be your land as defined by its borders all around. Now, two things that are worth mentioning here. Uh, I have three. If you have a good Bible, you can see this laid out on a map, and you can trace it for yourself. Um, the characteristics, the features are defined enough that we're pretty confident what these borders would look like, even in today's world. Okay? But I'm not going to take the time to walk you through a bunch of places you've never heard of um, or, or put a map up on the screen. Um, second, as I mentioned, Israel never attains the fullness of this promise. It's only in Ezekiel's prophecies looking forward that he starts to envision things as they should be. But third, the third thing I wanted to mention here is that these borders correspond exactly with the borders of the land of Canaan recorded for us in the records of Egypt. In other words, these borders are not just arbitrarily defined by God, but this land of Canaan he's been promising, it's, it's this land. It's, it's known by Egypt of this time, uh, and it's fascinating how much this lines up with what would be expected. Verse 13, Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give the nine tribes and the half-tribe. As I mentioned, the other two and a half tribes are taken care of on the east side of Jordan. But notice here it's supposed to be by lot, and then we read earlier that it was supposed to be corresponding to size. Okay? And so effectively, God preemptively comes up with a way of fairly distributing the land, avoiding any sort of internal conflict about borders. Verse 14, for the tribe of the people of Reuben by father's houses and the tribe of the people of Gad by their father's houses have received their inheritance and also the half-tribe of Manasseh all on the east side of the Jordan. Verse 15, the two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan east of Jericho toward the sunrise. Now not only does God lay out a plan for this distribution, but he also here and now before the war appoints leaders. Now, we're all familiar with the proverb, don't count your chickens before they hatch, but that doesn't apply to God. Okay? He's promised to take them into the land. He will bring it to completion, and in a way that would definitely encourage and inspire Israel, he goes, let's take care of this now before the battle is won. And so verse 16, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the names of the men who shall divide the land for your inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You should take one sheaf from every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. These are the names of the men of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephthah. Now, of this list of men, Caleb is the only one we recognize. And it makes sense that he would earn this respected role. 
right? Caleb and Joshua were the only two of the 12 spies, one from each tribe sent out, that were willing to trust God and said, the land is good, the armies are big, but if God is with us, then everything's going to be great. And so he here is entrusted to oversee the distribution of the land along with nine other men, none of whom who have been named at this point, which makes sense. Because only a few pages ago, we were dealing with these men's fathers, all of whom have died in the wilderness. Okay? But nonetheless, they are listed here up front. Verse 20, of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shimuel, the son of Amihud, of the tribe of Benjamin, Eldad, the son of Chislon, of the tribe of the people of Dan, a chief, Buki, the son of Jogli, of the tribe of Joseph, of the tribe of the people of Manasseh, a chief, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and of the tribe of the people of Ephraim, a chief, Kemiel, the son of Shiphthan, of the tribe of the people of Zebulon, a chief, Eliphan, the sons of Parnak. You hear that repeated phrase, a chief, okay? These would have been not just the heads of tribes, but the heads of clans, families within the tribes, generation or down, that were well respected in the community, okay? When the elders of Israel gathered, they would have drawn from these, as here they're called the chiefs. Verse 25, of the tribe of the people of Zebulon, a chief, Elisphan, the son of Parnak, of the tribe of the people of Issachar, a chief, Padiel, the son of Azan, and the tribe of the people of Asher, a chief, Alahud, the son of Shelemai, the tribe of the people of Naphtali, a chief, Pediel, the son of Amahud. These are the men whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. And so now the division and its leadership is overseen, and as we move into chapter 35, there's one tr tribe who has no representatives. There's one tribe who's not going to receive by lot an inheritance in the land, and that's the tribe of the Levites. Okay? We've read already that God is to be their portion instead of the land, and they are serving on behalf of Israel, but they still have to live somewhere. Right? It's a call to the Levitical priesthood. It's not a call to homelessness. And so on top of that, if there was a Levitical tribe territory then they would be in isolation from other tribes, and the further the tribes away, the more isolated they would be. Instead, God's plan here is to, uh, throughout the land of Israel, across all the tribes, install particular cities for the Levites to live in. So they're equally distributed across the land of Israel in cities that are donated by the tribes for the livelihood of the Levites. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possessions as cities for them to dwell in. And you should give to the Levites pasture land around the cities. Now, this is a pretty common ancient city layout, okay, where you have a walled city, and then right around it you have a circle of shared common pasture lands and small farms, okay? So these are not private lots, but they're where anyone who lives in the city can raise their animals, because you don't want to live with 30 goats, right? Okay? Um, and so this, this stuff that uh, we find here is very similar to what we find in other ancient Near East documents, but the donation there to be given is not just an apartment downtown, it's a small city with pasture land surrounding, and so that is laid out uh, in advance, okay? And so what does it say in verse 3? 
The city shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture land shall be for the cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. The pasture land of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. Okay. Effectively, we're talking of uh, about a thousand yards. Okay. And so if you can picture the city, whatever the city shape is, the furthest east point, if you were to walk ten football fields, and then you were to go to the furthest north point and watch 10 football fields, that would give you the square around the city that was to be reserved for pasture land. Now, notice what happens if the city gets bigger. So does the pasture land. But it's to be proportionate to the needs of the size of the city or the needs of the people dwelling in it. And so this is all laid out in advance so that there's no infighting, no difficulty, no, uh, no problems Um, And so we get verse 5, you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, on the north side 2,000 cubits. Do you see why it's changed to 2,000? Because 1,000 on the east plus 1,000 on the other side equals 2,000. Okay, so it's 2,000 square yards effectively uh, that we're talking about of pasture land with the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as pasture land for the cities. Now, here we get the distribution of these cities, verse 6. The cities that you shall give the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall per, uh, permit the manslayer to free, flee. More on that in a second. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48, the 42 plus the 6, uh, with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that the inheritor shall give to the city of the Levites. Now, all of these cities will be named for us when Israel obeys this command after they conquer in the book of Joshua. But in total, across the 12 tribes are 48 cities, and six of them, in other words, one for every two tribes, is labeled here a city of refuge. So what we have in the rest of chapter 35 is an explanation of those cities and what purpose they serve. Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. Okay? And so these are specifically cities of refuge for those who have accidentally killed a person. Okay? In this day and age, the most common way that this was dealt with uh, was in the context of the most common unit of society, families. Okay? And so even when we look at the things going on in the other uh, countries of the ancient Near East, we don't really see many nations run by kings. There's a few, Midians and the Philistines. But most of the people are nomadic and are run by a council, which is just the tribal heads of the families. Okay? And so the way, that, uh, the way that murder was dealt with didn't involve some sort of broad governmental national authority but it was left to the families, okay? Now, what they're trying to avoid here is a family killing, a vengeance killing that is un, uh, unmerited because it's accidental, okay? And so the cities of refuge are particularly a place for the one person who accidentally kills a person to flee to so that there couldn't be a vengeance killing 
Now, notice what it says here. Uh, verse 12. This city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. Okay, and so these cities were a place where they could appeal and stand under judgment and basically go under trial. Verse 13, the cities that you should give shall be your six cities of refuge. You'll give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. And so three in the two and a half tribes and three in the mainland. Now we're told later that not only are these cities to be evenly distributed, they're also supposed to have really good roads that touch the rest of Israel. Because what good is a city of refuge if you can't get there? Okay, But they're laid out here. And then it repeats again in verse 15. These six cities shall be refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. And so this legal system that we're having laid out here protects all people, not just Jews, not just free people, slaves, sojourners, anyone falls under the ability of what's being laid out here. So, what goes on in the rest of the chapter are some rules for determining guilt in the account of a death. Okay, And so, we kind of get into the court case a little bit. Look at verse 16. But, if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Okay, And so, a distinction is being made here between the manslayer who does it accidentally, and the murderer. And clearly that comes down a good deal to intent. And the first way they're given to think about intent has to do with the implement involved in the death. Okay? There's a difference between when you strike someone with a branch and when you strike them with a pickaxe. Right? One has, uh, let's say, a greater risk of mortality. And so it says something about intent. Okay? Accidental deaths happen. My wife and I have a friend who just lost their little boy's best friend because he was running in the house, slipped on the wood floor, and the fell killed him. Okay? We are fragile people. But here, the concern is not so much that, uh, not so much uh, about, you know, in the library with a candlestick. It's about intent discerning the difference between murder and accident. And so it mentions here, uh, if the implement is iron, verse 17, if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer and the murderer shall be put to death. Verse 19, the avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. Now that's a difference between our legal system and theirs. Who is the executioner? Not some government official appointed by the state, but a representative of the victim's family. Okay. Now, I've been reflecting on that this afternoon, um, and there is something significant in it that maybe we in modern language would call closure. Right? There's a recognition that the harm is primarily against an actual family and not just the breaking of a law, although it is that. And so the family is directly involved. Another thing it does, I mean, let's just recognize this, that we have a tremendous ability to be a false witness. We'll get to this in just a second. 
Uh, be a false witness if we're not the ones who, if you'll forgive me for being uncouth, pull the trigger. Okay? The seriousness of what's going on is implied by involving directly the avenger. Now, here's something interesting. This word for avenger is goal. It's mostly translated redeemer. Okay? In the year of Jubilee, uh, or prior to the year of Jubilee, if you had sold your land or yourself into slavery, one of your brethren could become your goal, your redeemer, and step in and buy back the land so that you would have it again. It was the kinsman redeemer that plays such a significant role in the story of Ruth. When Boaz takes not just the land, but the woman that comes with it, Ruth, to restore the line of her lost brother of Naomi, right? Okay, that's the same word here. But it functions a little bit differently. We'll see in just a second. All of this comes back to what is said in the book of Genesis in chapter 9. That if a man takes the life of another man or a woman, if a person takes the life of another person, their life shall be taken. For man is made in the image of God. Okay? And so, so effectively... Um, this avenger is balancing the scales. We'll see another uh, part on this in just a minute, minute. But look again at verse 19. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died. Uh, and so what's the difference here? This is the difference in between what we call a murder or a crime of passion and one in cold blood, right? Lying in wait shows intention. It shows that you've been waiting for them to come around the corner. It's different than if you get in an argument and things get out of hand and somebody dies. And so that distinction is made here. Okay. Verse 21. Or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died. Then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity... Okay? The idea here of enmity is not something emotionally going on, it's history. Okay? The idea here is that the community knows there was a hatred and a feud going on. That has to be part of the process. I mean, none of this should be unfamiliar to us because these are significant parts of our own justice system. It's why we believe in character witnesses. Okay? We try and look at the broader story and what are we trying to determine? Not if somebody died at somebody's hand, but if that was intentional. It's why we make a distinction between different degrees of murder even. And so these tools are given so that they can discern the difference. Okay? So, uh, so once again, um, if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hold anything on him without lying in wait, or he used a stone that could cause death without seeing him and dropped it on him. Okay, so um, twice I have thrown a rock in my life without thinking of the consequences. Once I was the victim. When I was about five, I threw a rock about the size of my head on the roof. Uh, I actually just threw it up in the air, but it landed on the roof. And then I heard the sound of it, kathunk, 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 and I continued to watch until it fell on my face. Okay, another time, another time I was throwing, well, actually it wasn't rocks, it was ice at a power line. My young, totally disgruntled teenage boy brain was wondering if ice would melt in contact with a power line, which is ridiculous science. And if I had stopped to think, I would have known then, as an 11-year-old, it was ridiculous science. But we don't think as 11-year-old boys. So I'm throwing these, and what's on the other side of the power line from my yard? The street. 
and I hit a car and I break the windshield, okay? That's very different than when I was 16 and I put a board covered in nails in the road and waited for a car to come, right? Even though they both did damage to other people's property, one was intentional. That's what it's coming on here. It's possible that you toss a rock over your shoulder because you're working in your yard and you don't see your neighbor and you kill him. So the distinction is made. Verse 24. Then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules, okay, determining if there was intention. Verse 25, the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. So let's get the whole big picture here. So the man flees to the city, and then he stands before a national court of elders. Now, why is that significant? Because in his own territory, he may stand primarily before a jury of his victim's family members. Okay? And so the court case is brought in. It's just like in modern court cases where they go, we don't feel like we can have a fair trial in this county, so we'd like to have it there. Right? Same idea here. Um, so they have the case, and if they find that it was unintentional, that he's what the passage here calls a manslayer, then he literally moves into one of these cities of refuge and stays there. That's where he lives now, and that is his safety. It's his sanctuary that protects him from the Redeemer, from the Avenger. Okay? And specifically, we're told he needs to stay there until the high priest dies. Remember, Israel only has one high priest, but as long as the current high priest who's in office is in office, they remain in the city of refuge. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, verse 26, but if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of the city of refuge to which he fled, the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of the city of refuge and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. He has to stay in the city of refuge. That is the safe place for him. Verse 28 makes that clear. For he must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of possession. Now, I imagine you've already got questions brewing, and that's good. Because it makes it sound like this is just protecting him from a really angry in-law of the victim. So what difference does it make when the high priest dies and he walks out of the city and he's out of that protection? Why would that keep his life? The concern here is not primarily about vengeance. It's about what the Bible sometimes calls blood guilt. It's about the significance of the death of a human being and the taking of a human life, intentionally or unintentionally. Okay. You remember what happens with Cain and Abel? Cain kills Abel. It's intentional. It's so intentional that like we read with Israel in the last chapter, God gives Cain a warning. And he says, I see what's going on in your heart. Sin is lying at the door, but you can rule over it. Watch out, Cain. Don't do this. It's intentional. It's premeditated. He calls Abel out into a field to get him away from the public and kills him there, right? But what does God say to Cain after that? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It must be dealt with. There must be a reckoning. That's really what this passage is getting into. In fact, read with me a little bit further. 
Verse 29, these things shall be a statute and a rule throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So we've been looking at the manslayer, now the murderer, and it makes clear here that nobody receives the death penalty from a single eyewitness account. Okay, there must be witnesses, plural. Uh, It continues, verse 31, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. Even what we call the lex talonis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The primary way that's applied in biblical law is monetarily. Okay, a value is meted out for the loss of an eye or for the loss of an animal, and that is paid instead. But that's not to be the case in murder. And that's significantly important, right? Because that would mean that a rich murderer could afford to murder. Right? The significance here is there is a difference between property and people. There's a difference between animals and human life. And that difference can't be exchanged monetarily. And so it makes clear here that there is no ransom for this. There is the, the murderer must die. Okay. Now, that brings us to a question which we could deal with later, but we might as well deal with now. How should Christians feel about capital punishment? And don't pre- pre-guess my answer here, because it's actually a somewhat difficult question. Like I said, the basis of human government in Genesis chapter 9 is clearly capital punishment. And that's, side note, a very good thing. Because it, it makes it so we don't just have reaction murders and killings. Okay? It creates a system so that society has a way to punish and not just individuals. It's the difference between vigilantes and vengeance and justice. Okay? And it really is the core uh, reason the Bible gives for the need for government. Okay? We see here that murder is taken very seriously for the same reason, because human life bears the mark of the image of God and is therefore significantly important and not to be thought of uh, as anything less than that. However, when we do get to the New Testament, we start to read the words of Jesus, and there are things that lead many people to believe uh, that we as Christians should believe in mercy above and beyond the law. And so the argument goes, well, there's lots of things in Israel that the death penalty was required for, none of which we we should, in modern society, fight for today. Clearly, murder is categorically different than those things. Just for one reason, because the capital punishment that we're talking about predates the law of Israel. It's not just about God's nation, Israel. But nonetheless, I, I understand where both sides come from. But there's a danger here that in that argument we would forget this absolute significance of human life. In fact, notice what he says here. So, verse 33, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Right? That's what he said to Cain. 
Your brother's blood has polluted the land. It's crying out to me from the land. Okay. And so the warning is here, verse 34, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people. And so this bloodshed needs to be rectified, and the way that it's rectified is through the life of the killer. But what about the accidental killer? Here's where we suddenly start to understand the relationship in his city of refuge and the life of the high priest. Here, it's the high priest's death that makes atonement for the manslayer. Okay? So it's not just a duration. The punishment of the manslayer is not exile, it's death, but that death is bared by another. This is not just, uh, if you're already reading ahead, a Christian interpretation that helps us to think about Jesus. This is how the Jews speak of it in the Talmud. Okay. They make very clear that it wasn't about anything but the death of the high priest. Because what was the high priest's role in Israel? To make atonement for the people of Israel. And so his death stands in uh, and uh, balances the scales so that the land is not defiled. Okay. Now, the author of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 18, takes these cities of refuge and does apply them to our lives and points to Jesus. Listen to his words here. We sometimes forget that Hebrews was written to Hebrews, to Jews. And so there's so much more in this single letter here that we don't pick up on if we don't know our Old Testament. But now that we've read this chapter, listen to this verse in chapter 6 in 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Do you hear that? Fled for refuge. In the Jewish mind, what do they think of? They think of Numbers 35. And we can make a pretty relative comparison between what we have in Jesus Christ and what Israel had here. We see that it was available to all, that anyone could flee to this refuge. They didn't have to be of the right pedigree. They didn't have to be of the right class. It was open to all. Uh, we see that it is the death of the high priest that makes atonement for them. Just turn a chapter in Hebrews and see how that plays out in Hebrews chapter 7. We see that they are to remain in the place of refuge. It's not like when you played a game of tag as a kid and you just had to touch the safe spot and then you were somehow immune to the rest of the game. You had to stay there. You had to be present there. And what God offers us in Jesus Christ is not a momentary relief, but a completely different station. The New Testament just calls it in Christ. That's where we live as human beings who have accepted Jesus in Christ. He is our refuge but there is also a mind-blowing difference. Because these cities of refuge were only for those who killed accidentally. And the refuge that Jesus offers is so profound in its value and his death is so significant that it applies even to murderers. We see this even in the, in the passion narrative itself. When Jesus is put on the cross, who goes free? a murderer named Barabbas. And not only that, but when he's standing between the two thieves there, one of the Gospels tells us that one was a thief, the other was a rebel, an insurrectionist, 
a life taker, okay? A suicide bomber, if you will. That's the one that believes and he says, surely you'll be with me in paradise. Refuge. You see, right here encoded in Israel is another picture in the book of Numbers of what was to come. But Jesus isn't just like the cities of refuge. He's better than. Once again, if you read the book of Hebrews, better is and more than, those are his favorite words. He says them over and over again. In fact, he even says that we have something that cries out more than the blood of Abel in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so these cities are delayed out so that justice can be done, so the land will not be polluted. And I think there is something we have to recognize here. If murder polluted the land of Cain, just his fields, if it polluted the land of Israel and the land of Canaan, because he's going to make clear over and over again, this is the reason he vomited them out, because of their violence. What does that say about our own land? What does that say about cities like L.A. and Chicago and Seattle? God cares about human life, and he takes it seriously. He values it. And the taking of life pollutes the land. Let's finish up in chapter 36. Again here, we are going to return to the daughters of Zelophehad. We've dealt with them before. These are the women who came and said, we don't have any brothers. Our father has died. So what about his inheritance of the land? Is his, his lineage cut off from inheritance in the land because he didn't have any sons? And so Moses takes their question to God and God says, no. No, if the daughters are the primary family, then they are the primary inheritors and the land passes on through them. Now the book comes here as these women have gotten a little bit older and are looking to marry and then the ones around them go, hey, wait a minute, doesn't that create a loophole? We've seen over and over again in the chapters we've read tonight that the land was to be given in inheritance and then it was to be perpetual. Even the year of Jubilee would deal with the greatest uh, um, mistakes of a family that would remove them from the land, selling themselves or their land. Uh, and so every 50 years it reverted to original ownership so that they were to hold the land, excuse me, as its tenants in perpetuity. And so these ones are looking at the daughters of Zelophehad and they're going, hey, wait a minute. If they marry outside of their own family, outside of their own tri tribe, then the land is going to transfer because they're going to pass it on to the sons of their husband, and now they have double inheritance, not just the land of Gad, but also, if they're daughters of Reuben, some Reubenite land. And so they go, what are we supposed to do here? How does this work out? And once again, I think it's a mark of the book of Numbers that God speaks, and then as things get practical, they go, hey, wait a minute, and they come back. They come to Moses, and they ask for interpretation. It speaks of the history of these things. But it's one final matter that needs to close in the book of Numbers. So verse 1, the heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses, before the chiefs and the heads of the father's house of the people of Israel. And they said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give an inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters, 
But if they're married to any of the sons of other tribes, the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe in which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe who they marry, and their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Why does it mention the jubilee? Because the jubilee doesn't change anything. That's about the selling of land, or more specifically, the selling of time with the land, because it's eventually going to revert back, but it doesn't say anything about inheritance. And so they've found a problem that they don't understand what to address or how to address. And so verse 5, Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, okay, and so Moses inquires of the Lord just as they inquired of Moses. Mo- God speaks to them and he gives them this answer. The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry who they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of of their father. Now I just want to highlight one thing there. Notice the, uh, the woman's role in choosing a husband. Let them marry who they think best. Oftentimes the way we interpret what we sometimes call patriarchy, taken from the word patriarch, right, in the Old Testament, is too narrow for what we actually find in the Bible. Okay. In fact, if you look just at the story of the patriarchs themselves, when um, when Abraham sends a servant to take a wife, sight unseen, for his son Isaac, read the story. Her brother's involved in the negotiation. Laban's a part of it, but eventually he goes, are you going to do this? And she says yes. Okay. But here, there's a significant reason why it puts it this way. Their father is dead and they have no brothers. Okay. They are going to operate solo, if you will, on their own. And so the recognition here is, despite that, they should choose the husband that makes the most sense to them. However, he continues here, verse 7, the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not uh, be transferred. In fact, I guess we should go back and read again in verse 6. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. They can take any husband within their own clan. And you go, but... I mean, that limitation just sounds abnormal to us. We hardly even marry people in our own city, right? We have the whole World Wide Web at our fingertips, and so we can marry somebody from another country. It seems unfair to make this limitation. Uh, Keep two things in mind, okay? The first is, and this is just my understanding, there's another option here. They could give up the inheritance. They could hand over the inheritance to the next of kin, whether it's an uncle So he's a brother. This was all laid out a few chapters ago, but if they're going to keep the inheritance, they have to marry within their own tribe. The second thing is, I think it would be remiss of us not to recognize uh, that once again, Israel values the community. And so these decisions, yeah, they're determined by how it impacts people around them. We don't like that as modern people. We want to think of autonomy and being self-made and we make our own decisions and anyone who stands in the way is wrong. Um, And so it's not uncommon for people in our day to elope and go, that was the right thing to do. The Bible sees humanity differently. We, as moderns, think of people like billiard balls. And so the way we think of us interacting is that we're just our own solid orb and we're on the map and as we bump into people, it impacts them. 
Eastern ways of thinking think of people like drops of water. And so there really is no individuality or uniqueness at all. We're just all part of the big bucket, right? But Middle Eastern thinking, the thinking of the Bible, Jewish thinking thinks of people kind of like a net of interwoven rope. Each strand is individual, but it is inherently connected to the strands around us. I was reading a book this year that made this so clear. She was talking about another Christian author who was, um, like many of us today, recognizing the individuality and the isolation and what it's doing to our culture. And he said that we need to get better at striving to connect. And she said, even he's bought into the lie of individualism. We don't have to strive to connect. We are inherently connected. She says, even Robinson Crusoe on his island doesn't survive alone. He survives on everything he's been handed by the culture that raised him. We start from a place of interconnected. The danger for us as Americans in our modern age is we ignore those connections, not that we don't make them. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. There is no such thing as a life lived on your own with your own determination. We're all interwoven and interconnected. And the Bible here very much crines against our misunderstanding. And so the option they're given is to marry within their own tribe. Verse 7, the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers, and every daughter who possesses an inheritance in the tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of the father. So, no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance." The daughters of Selophehad did as the Lord had commanded Moses. For Mala, Tizra, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Selophehad were married to the sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. Okay, and so that's resolved. Now notice how the book of Numbers ends. Let me make sure this is the ending. It's the end of my page. Verse 13. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Now, it's clearly a conclusion, but it's worth asking, what is it concluding? We could really simply read it as the commandments and rules that were given in this particular instance. Or maybe we could read it as the commandments and rules given in what we've covered tonight following this list of locations, all of these places, and the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, and said. But most likely, it's serving as a final statement of not only the book of Numbers, but the entire journey thus far. In other words, it looks over all of these things, the commandments given through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, And it recognizes the authority of what's been said. It's the final statement of preparation. And so where do we find them? In the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, at Jericho. And once again, it's in the book of Joshua that they will, through the command of God, based on the foundation of the covenant that God made with them through Moses, cross the Jordan River and begin the battle of the land of Canaan with the battle at Jericho. But... It's once again a chance to reflect. 
It's a chance to reflect on the promises that God has given and the warnings. It's a chance to reflect on the way that this is going to work and the way that it won't work. It's a chance to recognize that everything they have is going to be built on God's word or it's going to come to nothing. I'll point out something to you that I think is a really interesting thing. The Jews have always recognized that the first five books of the Bible, including Numbers, but also Deuteronomy, um, are uniquely significant. Not, not more authoritative, but the books of Moses are the foundation of everything else that follows. And what happens after the book of Deuteronomy in Joshua chapter 1? God comes to Joshua, and the way he speaks is not merely a new word for a new age. It's a call for Joshua to meditate on what's been said. It takes the foundation that was laid and says, devote your life to knowing what's in this book. Interestingly enough, in the Jewish uh, structure of the Old Testament, which is a little bit different than ours, From there on, it flows the prophets, and after the prophets, you get Psalm 1. That's the next one, once you close the time of the prophets. And what is it on? It's on meditating on the word of God. There's this structural reality where God speaks, and then he calls a people to build their lives on it. And he speaks, and he calls people to build their lives on it. And so Jesus is the great word of God. And then the epistles call us to better understand and build our lives on it. There's this repetition in the structure of scripture itself. And so this is a very suitable close to Numbers, one that will be repeated in Deuteronomy. In fact, in some sense, this is the close of the revelation of the books of the Bible because Deuteronomy is a reiteration of these things. Deuter means to. Onomo comes from nomos, which means law. It's the second telling of the law. It's the reiteration and the reminder of these things. But as we've seen in Leviticus, as we've seen in Exodus over and over again, these are the commandments and the rules of the Lord that he commanded through Moses to the people of Israel. So we close out the book of Numbers. Uh, Next week, We will take a night to just worship and reflect and pray on the things we've learned from the book of Numbers, and the following week we'll begin in Deuteronomy. Let's pray. God, I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus gave us about the wise and foolish builder the one who hears his words and does them is like a wise builder who builds on a rock and when the swords come, the house will stand. And the foolish one is the one who hears but does not do and that house comes to great ruin. I pray, Lord, that like the people of Israel in anticipation to the promises that you've given, set on the very borders of the promised land with all the victories to come, that we would see Uh, that, that you have given us your word as our foundation and that we would build our lives upon it. I pray that you would make us better readers of your word and better doers of your word. We ask this in your name tonight. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.